Chapter 28 of Gossip in the First Decade of Victoria's Reign by John Ashton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 The Last Post Office Bellman, The Corn Law Act, Sir Walter Scott's Monument, The Irish Famine, The Duke of Wellington's Statue, Guncotton, Introduction of Ether, Model Dwelling Houses, Baths and Wash Houses, Smithfield Cattle Market, the bullfight of smithfield the first submarine telegraph the illustrated london news of twenty seven june gives us the letter carrier's last knell we have just lost another of what poor thomas hood called those evening bells the postmaster-general having issued his fiat for the abolition of ringing bells by the letter carriers the last knell was rung out on the evening of wednesday last and as a memorial of the departure of what appeared to most persons a very useful practice our artist has sketched a letter-carrier on his last evening call at our office and another hand has appended the following lament the dustman was first to forgo his brass clapper the muffin-boy speedily followed his shade and now tis the postman that double-tongued rapper must give up his bell for the eaves promenade tante animis sage legislators why rage against trifles like these prithee tell why leave the solution to rude commentators who say that at home you've enough in one bell on twenty sixth june the royal assent was given to an act nine ten vic c twenty two called an act to amend the laws relating to the importation of corn this regulated the duty on corn by a sliding scale of prices which was to be in force until one february eighteen forty nine when it was fixed at one shilling per quarter the passing of this act caused general rejoicing throughout the country and put an end to a great deal of political rancour the inauguration of sir walter scott's monument at edinburgh took place on fifteen august the anniversary of his birth it was erected in eighteen forty forty four after designs by mr george m kemp at a cost of fifteen thousand six hundred and fifty pounds it is cruciform with a gothic spire chiefly modelled on the details of melrose abbey and includes beneath its basement arches a carrara marble sitting statue of scott with his dog maida by his side which is the work of mr steele and cost two thousand pounds the potato crop utterly failed again in ireland and the outlook there was indeed black in the times of two september its correspondent writing from dublin on thirty one august says as it is now an admitted fact on all sides that the destruction of the early potato crop is complete there can be no earthly use in loading your columns with repetitions of the sad details as furnished day after day in the accounts published by the irish newspapers it will therefore nearly suffice to say that according to the reports from all quarters the crisis of deep and general distress cannot be much longer averted and that it will require all the energies of both government and landlords to mitigate the inevitable consequences of a calamity of which both parties have been duly forewarned in the meantime the following statement in a limerick paper of saturday is another curious illustration of the irish difficulty 
In the corn market this day there appeared about 4,000 bushels of oats and about an equal quantity of wheat. All this grain was purchased up principally for exportation, whilst the food of the people, as exhibited this day in the potato market, was a mass of disease and rottenness. This is an anomaly which no intricacies of political economy, no legal quibbles or crotchets, no government arrangements can reconcile. In an agricultural country which produces the finest corn for the food of man, we have to record that the corn is sold and sent out of the country, whilst the individuals that raised it by their toil and labor are threatened with all the horrors of starvation. From a multiplicity of concurrent statements respecting the pestilence, I shall merely subjoin one, which appears in the last trolley paper. A man would hardly dig in a day as much sound potatoes as himself could consume. But that is not the worst of it. Common cholera has set in among the people of the town, owing to the use of potatoes which contain a large quantity of poisonous matter. A professional gentleman in this town, of considerable experience and unquestioned integrity, assures me that he has attended, within the last fortnight in this town and neighbourhood, more than twelve cases of common cholera, and that he would think a person as safe in consuming a certain quantity of arsenic as in using the potatoes now exposed for sale this is how the famine of eighteen forty six seven began and what followed is a matter of history which every one ought to know and ponder well over but it can hardly come under the name of gossip there were naturally a few food riots in different parts of the country but every one tried to do their best even in a blundering way to alleviate the distress the Archbishop of Canterbury composed a special form of prayer to be used on Sunday, 11 October. On 29 September, the gigantic equestrian statue of the Duke of Wellington, which used to crown the arch opposite Apsley House, and which was taken down 24 January 1883, and then set up at Aldershot, was moved from the artist's, Wyatt, studio in Harrow Road to Hyde Park it was twenty-seven feet high and weighed about forty tons being made of brass guns taken by the duke in various victories being of so great a weight the appliances to remove it were on an equally massive scale the carriage and framework in which it was placed weighing about twenty tons it took one hundred soldiers to haul the statue out of the studio and when mounted on its carriage it took twenty-nine huge dray-horses lent by mr godding of the lion brewery waterloo to drag it to its destination it was escorted by soldiers and military bands and did the distance in about an hour and a half the next day was spent in preparing to hoist it the day after it was lifted some fifty feet and there remained all night and the next day was safely landed and put in position from that time until it was taken down, it was the butt of scoffs and jeers, and no one regretted its departure. Gun cotton was brought into public notice by some experiments by its inventor, Professor Schoenbein of Basel, before the chairman of the East India Company and a number of scientists. Professor Brand had previously lectured upon it at the Royal Institution on 15 January, when he stated that about fifteen years before, Branconet had ascertained that sawdust wood shavings, starch, linen, and cotton fabrics 
when treated with concentrated nitric acid, produced a gelatinous substance, which coagulated into a white mass, on the addition of water. This substance, which he called xylodyne, was highly inflammable. Schoenbein, however, made his explosive from purified cotton, steeped in a mixture of equal parts of nitric and sulfuric acids, which, when carefully washed and dried, kept its appearance of cotton wool. In the times of 4 November is a notice of gun sawdust, a powder now much used, made by Mr. George Turner of Leeds. Whilst on the subject of chemicals, I may as well mention what was much talked of at the time, the discovery of sulfuric ether, when inhaled, being an anesthetic. Previous to this, nitrous oxide, or as it was called laughing gas, somewhat inadequately performed the same function. This latter was discovered by Dr. Priestley in 1776, and its use as an anesthetic recommended by Sir Humphrey Davy in 1880 was put into practice by Mr. Wells in America to lessen the pain in extracting teeth in 1844. The first notice of the inhalation of sulfuric ether that I know of is in number 45 of the British and Foreign Medical Review, which says, just as our last proof was passing through our hands we received from our medical friends in boston the account of a matter so interesting to surgeons and indeed to every one that we take the opportunity of introducing it here we know nothing more of this new method of eschewing pain than what is contained in the following extracts from two private letters kindly written to us by our excellent friends dr ware and dr warren of boston both men of the highest eminence in their profession in America, and we may truly say in Europe also. It is impossible, however, not to regard the discovery as one of the very highest importance, not in the practice of operative surgery only, but also, as Dr. Ware suggests, in practical medicine. We trust our friends will forgive us for putting into print their private communications. The importance of the subject and the necessity of authenticating the statements are our excuses. The authors of the discovery are Dr. C. T. Jackson and Dr. Morton. Dr. Warren writes, under date of 24 November, that, In six cases I have had it applied with satisfactory success and no unpleasant sequel and Dr. Ware, 29 November, says, It was brought into use by a dentist, and is now chiefly employed by that class of practitioners. He has taken out a patent for the discovery, and has dispatched persons to Europe to secure one there also, so you will soon hear of it, and probably have an opportunity of witnessing its effects. Then follows a long list of operations performed in America, wound up with this postscript. December 22nd, yesterday, we had ourselves this new mode of cheating pain put in practice by a master of surgery on our own side of the Atlantic. In the theater of University College Hospital, Mr. Liston amputated the thigh of a man previously narcotized by the inhalation of ether vapor. Shortly after being placed on the operating table, the patient began to inhale and became apparently insensible in the course of two or three minutes. The operation was then commenced, and the limb was removed in what seemed to us a marvelously short time, certainly less than a minute, the patient remaining during the incisions and the tying of the arteries perfectly still and motionless. 
while the vessels were being secured on being spoken to he roused up partially still showing no signs of pain and answered questions put to him in a slow drowsy manner he declared to us that at no part of the operation had he felt pain though he seemed to be partially conscious he had heard some words and felt that something was being done to his limb he was not aware till told that the limb was off and when he knew it expressed great gratification at having been saved from pain the man seemed quite awake when removed from the operating-room and continued so everything has since proceeded as usual and very favourably mr liston afterwards performed one of the minor but most painful operations of surgery the partial removal of the nail in onychia on a man similarly narcotized and with precisely the same result the patient seemed to feel no pain and upon rousing up after the operation declared that he had felt none punch found another and more domestic use for this anaesthetic patient this is really most delightful a most beautiful dream not only was there advance in medicine but also in social science people began to think that the condition of the working classes might be ameliorated by giving them better dwellings as yet little or nothing had been done in this way in london but a grand opportunity occurred at liverpool in the building of birkenhead and an extensive range of model dwellings were erected four-storied with ornate exterior the rents varying from three shillings to five shillings per set of rooms according to position but this included a constant supply of water and the use of one gas burner in each set of rooms and all rates and taxes with moreover two iron bedsteads a grate with an oven and convenient fixtures and they were found to answer financially the queen's consent was given on twenty six august to an act to encourage the establishment of public baths and wash-houses vic c seventy four how it was appreciated by the animals called vestrymen may be seen by the fact that at a vestry meeting of the inhabitants of st leonard's shoreditch held twenty six october the subject was brought forward when an amendment was moved that it be taken into consideration that day six months for the amendment twenty eight against twenty the dangers of smithfield market were becoming too apparent as we see by a letter in the times of twenty six november sir your paper of this morning again gives an account of more accidents arising in consequence of cattle being driven along our crowded streets and we may expect to hear of numerous probably some fatal injuries being sustained during the short and often very dark days which are common for some months in the winter every one whose avocations call him into the city has to complain of the delay arising from the overcrowded state of the leading thoroughfares and on smithfield market days the obstruction is greatly increased by the droves of cattle and sheep which in a bewildered and frequently infuriated state are being forced by crowds of men boys and dogs along the streets to the great annoyance and often danger of the passengers i do not here dwell on the revolting scenes of cruelty to the animals which every one has to witness and deplore but on the ground of danger to human life 
and also because of the seriously increased obstruction to the general traffic which is caused by having the cattle market in the heart of the metropolis i would urge the removal of smithfield market to some more appropriate place when this has been effected when abattoirs have been constructed where alone all the larger animals are permitted to be slaughtered and when cattle are allowed to be driven through the streets only at hours before the business of the day has commenced then and not before will london be in reference to its cattle market and slaughterhouses what is required in the middle of the nineteenth century punch gives us the following lyric on the subject the bullfight of smithfield there's trampling feet in goswell street there's row on holborn hill there's crush and crowd and swearing loud from bass to treble shrill from grazier cad and drover lad and butcher shining greasy and slaughter men and knackers men and policemen free and easy tis monday morn and onward borne to smithfield's mart repair the pigs and sheep and lowing deep the oxen fine and fair they're trooping on from islington and down whitechapel road to wild halloo of a shouting crew and yelp and bite and goad from combs of distant devonshire from sunny sussex wold from where their durham pastures the stately shorthorns hold from herefordshire marches from fenny cambridge flat for london's maw they gathered these oxen fair and fat the stunted stalks of cambria's rocks uneasily are lowing with redder blaze of wild amaze their eyes around them throwing and the unkempt stut of galloway and the kylo of the murns whose hoof that crushed the heather tuft the mild macadam spurns they may talk of plaza mayor of Tarero's nimble feet of montez the famed matador of picadors so fleet but what is spanish bullfight to deeds which we can show when through the street at all they meet the smithfield oxen go see there see there where high in the air the nurse and nursling fly into a first-floor window see where the old gent they shy now they're bolting into parlours now they're tumbling into cellars to the great disgust and terror of the peaceable indwellers who rides so neat down chisel street a city knight i ween by girth and span an alderman nor less by port and mean look out look out that sudden shout the smithfield herd is nigh now turn sir knight and boldly fight or more discreetly fly he hath eased round on his saddle all fidgety and fast there's another herd behind him and the time for flight is past full in his front glares a rabid runt through tears of pain that blind him for the drovers almost twisted off the tail that hangs behind him all lightly armed for such a shock was stout sir Calipee, but he couched his new umbrella and police aloud cried he crash smash slap dash the whalebone snaps the saddle seat is bare and the knight in mazy circles is flying through the air the runt tears on the rout is gone the street is calm once more and to bartlemy's they bear him extended on a door now gramercy good sir Calipee, to the turtle and the haunch that padded out thy civic ribs and lined thy stately paunch no ribs are broke but a shattering stroke thy system has sustained 
any other than an alderman had certainly been brained and soon as he had breath to swear the knight right roundly swore that straight he'd put down smithfield and set up an abattoir in this year there were sold at smithfield two hundred and twenty six thousand one hundred thirty two beasts one million five hundred ninety three thousand two hundred and seventy sheep and lambs twenty six thousand three hundred and fifty six calves and thirty three thousand five hundred thirty one pigs to deal with which there were about a hundred and sixty salesmen things went on very much in the same style as described in punch until eighteen fifty one when the contracted space of the market the slaughtering places adjoining and many other nuisances gave grounds for general dissatisfaction and after an investigation an act fourteen fifteen vic c sixty one was passed on one august for providing a metropolitan market and conveniences therewith in lieu of the cattle market at smithfield a suitable site was found in copenhagen fields islington the last market at smithfield was held on eleven june and the first at the new one on thirteen june eighteen fifty five the hampshire guardian copied into the times of twelve december gives us the story of the first submarine telegraph we are enabled to supply the following additional particulars respecting the submarine telegraph laid down across our harbour it is now about three years since the telegraph from the nine elms terminus to the terminus at gosport was first established subsequently from the inconvenience experienced at the admiralty office here because of the distance to the telegraph station the wires were continued from that place to the royal clarence yard with this addition although the inconvenience was lessened it was far from being removed the harbour intervening leaving a distance of upwards of a mile to the admiral's house unconnected and notwithstanding the wish of the authorities both here and in london that the telegraph should be carried to the dockyard no attempt has hitherto been made to do so because it has been considered almost impossible to convey it under water an offer indeed was made to the admiralty to lay down a telegraph enclosed in metallic pipes which were to be fixed under the water by the aid of diving bells this scheme having been found to be impractical has been very prudently abandoned whatever difficulties may have hitherto interfered to prevent the establishment of submarine telegraphs appear now to have been entirely overcome for the time occupied from the commencement of carrying the telegraph from shore to shore and transmitting signals did not occupy a quarter of an hour the telegraph which has the appearance of an ordinary rope was coiled into one of the dockyard boats one end of it being made fast on shore and as the boat was pulled across the telegraphic rope was gradually paid out over the stern its superior gravity causing it to sink to the bottom immediately independently of the simplicity of this submarine telegraph it has an advantage which even the telegraphs on land do not possess in the event of an accident it can be replaced in ten minutes the success of the trial here has we understand determined the inventors to lay down their contemplated line across the channel from england to france under the sanction of the respective governments such was the germ of the multitudinous cables which now span every ocean End of chapter twenty eight